All right, this is our lesson seven. We've been studying now Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel for seven weeks. And we're calling this whole study Building Revival. The key word there is building, not sitting, not excusing, not television watching, but revival must be built. Now, that's hard to convince Christians of in America when Obamacare will take care of you and the Obama phone will make sure you have a phone and welfare will make sure you have food to eat and a place to stay and you don't have to do nothing. It's very hard in this industrialized nation to motivate people to serve God because we have made ourselves God and our government has helped to make ourselves God. Hollywood tells you how awesome you are to be like them because they're awesome. We, in the last 50 years, we've really seen the kingdom dissolve and it's getting harder and harder to build revival because of what's infected us as a people. We are more American than we realize and that's not a good thing. We need to make sure we're more Christian minded. So we've been calling this for seven weeks, building revival, not praying revival in, which is part of truth, not sleeping in revival, not just getting to ride on somebody else's coattails, which is what a lot of folks do. You and I, as, as members of this church, as leaders in this church, we're called to build revival here so the heathen will have something to come warm themselves by. We're called to build the revival fires so the lost can come and warm themselves up, so that the backslidden can come and find rededication. But if you and I, the core group, if you and I, the, those that know what to do, if we neglect this, then the region may perish or God may move on to another church or another group of believers. And I, I don't think we're the only group, but I do know this, when the people God's called don't get after it, God moves on, he'll find somebody else. Don't, we're not that important. In that regard, we're a fuse. We blow out, he pops us out, puts a new one in, fires it back up. You and I, we're just fuses that his power wants to flow through. And if we blow out on him or quit, he'll open up the box, pull the breaker, pull the fuse, put, put another one in there. You ready, son? Flip it on and he'll keep on going. And all it'll do is cost him a day. I don't want to be the replaced fuse. I want to be the fuse that keeps on fusing, having the power of God flow through us. So, we must build revival. As we've been covering for six weeks, Israel was in torments and in exile and in slavery because of laziness, because of this big fancy theological term we've been covering for several weeks called syncretism. They were synchronizing the world with God and trying to synchronize God with the world and it made them lazy. Syncretism is the attempted synchronization of two impossible philosophies. In the case of God, it's God with flesh. In the case of Israel, it was, it was God with marrying the Amorites and the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Philistines. It was the mixing of pagan religions with Jehovah God. We're watching that in the church today. We're watching the seeker-friendly movement synchronize or attempt to synchronize God with the world. And when you do that, you become God's instructor. And God will not be instructed by a little pea, peabody human being. You know, God expects us to synchronize our life with his, which is always going to sound something like this. Hurry up now. Hurry up now. Hurry up now. Hurry up now. Faster. You can do better. Hurry up. That's how, that's God's synchronization. But when you and I run the show, come on, God, slow down. Come on, God, why won't you permit this? God, why won't you tolerate this? God, why, why can't you bless this? I'm going to go this way, God. And, and uh, if you want me to follow you, then you better come over here and follow me. And the problem is, uh, we're watching this in a lot of churches and it's making the fastest growing churches in the land and it's making them perverse. 
uh, we, we were out to be with uh, Dr. Barclay at Straight Talk, and I asked a question. I said, sir, it occurs to me, and I just want you to judge this statement. We, are, we know we're in the great falling away, and we know we're watching Christians leave the faith. I said, but it appears to me they'll be able to stay in church and do it at the same time. And he said this, he said, they won't be able to stay in our kinds of churches. They're making their own kinds of churches. They'll stay in those churches and go to hell. And I said, yes, sir, that's, yeah. He said, that's exactly accurate. And I don't think we ever saw that coming, that the falling away would happen and Christians would stay in church to do it. You gotta be careful it doesn't minister to you. That's also why in the next service we've been teaching on Judas for several weeks now because that's exactly what he did. He stayed seemingly close to Jesus and went to hell. And he's the son of perdition and that spirit is still at work on the earth today. So we must build revival. We're not gonna get into the synchronization that the seeker-friendly church has where we bring Hollywood in, where we bring all the entertainment in. We're sticking with the gospel of Jesus. Coming now back to our lessons, for 400 years, excuse me, for 70 years, Israel was in captivity because of synchronization, syncretism, because they stopped serving God. They got dirty. They got perverse, and because of that, God said, fine, captivity for you. See if you can learn a lesson. It was the ultimate timeout. 70 years of timeout, and they got spanked all the way there. So it was double duty. It was not only just timeout, but a spanking for 70 years in timeout. But at the end of seven years, because God is merciful, he gave them another opportunity to be a nation yet again and not a possession. Either way, they were going to be possessed by someone, either the Babylonians, the Persians, or Jehovah. And I think they chose Jehovah. And either way, you and I were going to be possessed by something. It can either be flesh, the devil, or Jesus Christ. So we went through Zerubbabel. He was set free by Cyrus to go build a temple. That took about 20 years. They accomplished it. Then after that, Ezra was sent. 80 years after Zerubbabel, Ezra was sent to bring about revival because those that had come back to build a second temple for Jehovah God had gotten into syncretism. Ezra panicked because he said, what are you doing? This is the very thing we we're made slaves for. And there is no restoration after this one. Repent. And his his preaching, his revival was a revival of spiritual divorce. The, the solution for all of the Jews was divorce yourselves from these dirty people. And so it was a, a giant national wave of divorce. Now, we don't divorce in the new covenant. We understand that. The Bible says if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. Sure. But the Bible says if the unbelieving be happy to stay, let them stay. But what it is, is an allegory for us that we are to divorce ourselves from things that we try to synchronize with God excuses, you should divorce yourself from that. Perversion, you should divorce yourself from that. Pornography, anger, unforgiveness. These are the things we divorce. We don't divorce our spouse. We know that. So that comes along. Ezra is able to restore Israel back to a, a worship of God. But that brings us to Nehemiah. If Ezra's job was done, we'd never need a Nehemiah. Now, again, to review quickly, Zerubbabel was a builder. He, he was the governor of Judah but he was a builder. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. He was not a builder. So his move and his role in the revival was one of religious reforms or spiritual reforms. He built nothing but a heart of God for the people or heart for, for God in the people. That brings us to Nehemiah now. Nehemiah was not a priest or a scribe. He's a builder again. So we go builder, preacher, builder. So it's a sandwich. A lot of building going on though. All right, 
So let's look in here. We're calling this lesson uh, Nehemiah the Motivator. What's the timeline? Now let's jump in and, and let's do a little Bible study here. What's the timeline? The book of Nehemiah begins in the 20th year of Artaxerxes or 13 years after Ezra's spiritual reforms. So Ezra has had his revival. Everybody's repented. They've divorced themselves of the heathen women, the Samaritan women. They've even divorced themselves of their mixed kids. We're not against mixed marriage. We're not against mixed kids. Every one of us in here is mixed. And then half of you are mixed up. So either way, we like the mixed multitude in this church because we need help. <laughs> There's not a one of us in here with pure nothing. We are all mixed. Even, even Mr. Marcelino being Hispanic, there's Spaniard blood in him. That's why Mexicans speak Spanish because of the Spaniard colonialists. There's not a one of us in here pure, pure nothing. I got a little bit Choctaw in me. You got a little bit African in you. We, we got, we're all Heinz 57. But that, this thing was so severe, God said, get rid of the offspring you made in sin too. But Nehemiah comes along 13 years after Ezra's spiritual revival and the work's still not done. Who was Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah's name means Jehovah comforts. Thank God. And he was a Jew born while in captivity. So he had never seen Israel. He'd been born at during the 70 years of, of slavery and captivity. He had somehow become the trusted cupbearer for Artaxerxes. This was not only a position of royal food tasting to prevent poisoning, but uh, theologians also tell us it was one of trusted confidant of the king. He would have been one of the king's best friends. He would have been the one the king always talked to. If he was that trusted to drink and taste food before it was served to the king, the king's going to know him very personally, very intimately. And you can see that played out in the conversations. If he's just a slave that you replace every time somebody tries to poison you, you're not going to give him permission to go to Israel for 12 years and make him governor on the way there. So this, we know this from, from historicity or, or from historical record, but also we see it played out in the Bible record. He was more than just a cupbearer. He was a trusted friend of Artaxerxes, which once again shows us how much favor God gave his people while they were slaves. The hand of God and the favor of God was still on them. That a Jew who's supposed to be being punished is the king's best friend. Just like Ezra had Artaxerxes' favor and could do what he wanted to. Just like Zerubbabel was made governor over his hometown where he was taken away from as a slave. And, and God gives him favor to go back and run the Judean colony. God had his hand on him, though he was spanking him at the same time. You know, when you get spanked, you put one hand on your kid and one hand on the rear end. Right? And when we get spanked, God has his hand on us and the other hand is coming on us and going away. Coming on us and going away. God did the same thing here. And the Bible says when he corrects you, it's because he loves you. We have this thing messed up. We want a buddy hug from Jesus and not a correction. The Bible says correction proves he loves us, not a hug. In fact, there was one time where somebody wanted to hug Jesus. He said, don't hug me. Tear. <laughs> he had a reputation of joy. Boy, would to God some Christians could get a hold of that. He had a joyful reputation, and we know that because he had never been sad in the king's countenance, or he had never had a sad countenance in the king's presence. The day he comes in sad, the king says, what's wrong? Now, again, if they're not best friends, why would the king even care? Smile, slave, or off with his head, get me another. But the king cared for him. He said, well, Nehemiah, what's wrong? Why are you sad? 
And he said, sir, can I be happy while the city of my father's lies desolate and ruined? And the king says instantly, what do you want? That's favor. Now, that's not, now some of you have mastered manipulation. What's wrong, baby? My car makes me feel bad. Would you buy me another car? No, we can't afford it. You don't love me. See, some of you as Americans and American women, you've mastered that maneuver. <laughs> but this was genuine and sincere. And again, it proves they were best friends. He had a joyful reputation. Christians should have that. You shouldn't be known for being Brother Sourpuss or Long John Jowls. Or like we have made fun of for years around here, me dumb, dumb, no fun, fun. The big Easter Island head. It's okay to smile. Our pastor in India used to say, smile, it adds face value. And some of you could use some improvement in value. Makeup ain't cutting it. Growing a beard don't cut it. Smile some more. <laughs> he became governor of Judah upon returning to Jerusalem. So that's who he became. He became a governor. So you, remember, this is Persia. It's a great empire like Britain was. And so it had territories everywhere. But this is, this is 2,500 years ago. You, you, you don't have satellite offices and you don't have Wi-Fi and you don't have satellites, period. So you have to have governors you trust over your territories. And if they ever rebel, you roll your eyes and you got to go march your army 90 months across the desert to go kill them. So you only put trusted people over your territories. And Nehemiah became that trusted governor for Artaxerxes to now run Jerusalem. The problem, here's the problem. Why, what's the problem? Why does Nehemiah even exist? Jerusalem and its city wall were still in ruins from Artaxerxes' second year. The destruction hadn't been repaired in 17 years since Rahum, Shimshai, and their companions destroyed it. If you remember in Ezra 4, when Artaxerxes became king, the Samaritans rose up and they, they made a, a lie against Jerusalem, they said, this is a rebellious bunch and they're building the city and you know they're going to throw you off and they're not going to pay taxes. Why would you permit this? So Artaxerxes comes back and says, I've researched it. You're right. These are stubborn people. They won't be ruled by anybody. They've had many great kings and they are a threat. Command them at once to cease and desist. So Shimshai and their companions, they took that to the nth degree. And they, as the Hebrew reads there in Ezra 4.23, it says, by force and by army, they made the Jews to stop construction. It is this report that comes to the ears of Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter one. And he says, a brother of mine came from Judah and I inquired how are the people in the city? And he said, horrible. The city's in desolation. The walls have been burned with fire and we are a reproach. And that's what motivated Nehemiah to do something. The problem is it had been a reproach for 17 years. And I suppose word had never gotten back. Again, it's a five-month journey by foot, and there's other comings and goings, and you're a Persian king, and you've only got half the free world or your world under your thumb, so what if something hasn't been looked at in 17 years? So this is the first time, apparently, Nehemiah has heard that his beloved city, things were going so well. What happened? This is, remember, that we covered this two weeks ago. It's why Ezra said, can I go and figure out what's going on there? Because you commanded them to stop. It's only because we've lost favor. Which, as we pointed out, is a good reason for you to judge yourself. And if you've lost favor, go talk to God. What have I done to lose favor? What have I done to lose momentum? What have I done as a Christian to lose favor with God, my boss, my pastor, my husband, uh, my teacher, my professor? You ought to judge yourself. We as Americans, we like to point the finger and blame. 
We've been taught how to blame over the last 60 years. It's, it's their fault. They're racist. It's their fault. They don't like women. It's their fault. They don't like white people. It's their fault. They think I'm smarter than them. It might be your fault. That's what Ezra did. Now Nehemiah is coming up after the fact and saying, all right, we've got restoration. We've got favor. Let's, uh, let's go build the city back. The people's syncretism had caused the move of God to come to a standstill. It also appears that syncretism had sucked the desire to rebuild Jerusalem out of the Jews. They repented, they got their life back, but they never bothered to rebuild what Shemshai and Risham had destroyed. It appears that syncretism totally sucks motivation out of you, which makes me wonder how much syncretism is in our community or in my church. Because sometimes this region ain't motivated to do much but go to the tractor pool. Or skip church. Boy, when it comes to skipping church, we're highly motivated. When it comes to a ball game, we are highly motivated. How much syncretism is in your life? These folks weren't motivated. That was the, one of the effects of syncretism. They had no motivation. We've repented. We got rid of our wives. Please don't ask anything else of us. The city walls destroyed. Eh. Well, the city's desolate. Eh, I got my little villa in the countryside. We're fighting the same thing in America today. The church is in ruins. Eh, I got my job in my flat panel. We have no revival. God, God is not moving in our midst. We need to come together and pray. I got grass to cut. You've asked so much of us. I've already cut the sin out of my life, Pastor. What's the big deal? You want me to come up here and work too? No. I'll pray the burdens out and new people in. The people's syncretism had caused the move of God to come to a standstill. It also appears that syncretism had sucked the desire to rebuild Jerusalem out of the Jews. Syncretism is, above all things, selfish and spiritually debilitating. Once you start feeding the flesh, it becomes nearly impossible to stop. All right, that's the problem. It's been dormant for 17 years. All right, great. You got all the sin out. Now you should have a revival and a strengthening and refreshing. What's the last thing God was doing? Rebuilding the city. So for 17 years, they've done nothing? It's the same thing we saw in the days of Zerubbabel. They got discouraged, and so they slowly just quit building the temple. And so for two years, they sat and did nothing? And so the Lord raised up prophets to prophesy. And it wasn't a good TBN prophecy. It was, how dare you go to your fancy homes and grow your businesses while my house lies in ruin? It was not an encouraging, warm and fuzzy prophecy. But yet the Bible says, they prospered by the prophesyings of Haggai and Zechariah. So sometimes what God's people need is a royal foot. Your feet are shut with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's the preacher's foot. So sometimes we bend you over and we prepare you with the gospel of peace. We give you a piece of the gospel and we motivate you to do something for Jesus Christ. God's people don't seem to be able to lead themselves. Yeah. All right. Nehemiah had to ask the Jews some eye-opening questions. Nehemiah's heart for Israel should be our heart for the church. Nehemiah 2.17. Then I said unto them, do you see the distress that we are in? No. How Jerusalem lies waste? Really? And the gates thereof are burned with fire? Is that why they smell like smoke? Come, 
Let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach, a disgrace. They, they had gotten so comfortable being a disgrace, they didn't even see they were a disgrace. We could almost say there was a poverty mindset there. They had been in poverty for 17 years. They didn't even see it as poverty. And, and Nehemiah has to come from the palace, from a level of excellence to a, a beat up, broken down, possum hollered Jerusalem and say, you guys do realize this isn't acceptable. It's not. We're a reproach. We are. We're a disgrace. Really? Really? The Jews were just satisfied to let their city, their pride and joy, lie desolate. And why shouldn't they? They had their homes to go to. They had food in their stomach. They had jobs to tend to. Why should they make the effort to work? Well, God had to raise up and send a motivator to get his will accomplished. It's always the case. Always the case. God always has to raise somebody up with his feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace to go give Christians a piece of the gospel, a swift kick in the hind end. Because you and I both know without a leader, you'll grow, you'll grow nowhere. You'll grow wild. You'll grow as you see fit. You'll chase this whim. We know that everybody needs a leader. A wife needs a leader. Children need a mom and dad. A company needs a CEO or a board of directors. A country needs a president or a prime minister or a king. A military needs a captain or a general or an admiral. Nobody can get this thing. We are not ants that can go about with no ruler. Amen. So let's look at the motivation now. As usual, God's people demonstrate that they are totally incapable of leading themselves into greatness for his glory. <laughs> totally incapable. When you are led by the Spirit of God, he'll lead you to a church where you're to plant and become a part of the vision and a part of what's going on there. When you are led by God. Now, like we've teached in this church, you know, there's, there's the great ministry of the traveling Christian that just hop around. Christians hop around because they don't want to be submitted and they don't want to take on the flavor of anybody else. For some reason, Christians think it's a bad thing if they model their life after somebody else. So you end up modeling your life after a hobo or Charlie Chap Chaplin, the tramp. You know, he just trampled around everywhere. They called him the tramp, not tramp like we think in the modern day, but he had the little hobo bag and he just hop on the trains. That was his most famous movie was the tramp. Just everywhere he went, that's just where he was and ends up smelling like nothing but his own B.O. Christians are that way. And it makes for a weak church. For, seven, for the 17 years following Ezra's revival, no one had bothered to stir up the people to get back to work on rebuilding the city or the walls. Complacency had set in. God's people are capable of great things with the right leadership. Nehemiah was the right leader. So Nehemiah 2.18, Then I, Nehemiah, told them of the hand of God which was good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, one little simple sermon, God's hands on me and the king's force. And they said, look at what the people, let us rise up and build. That's all it took. For 17 years, we had this great army available and all it took was one man coming and saying, God's for me, so's the king. What are we waiting for? <laughs> it's almost like it takes just the right button to push, the right motivation that's what the anointing does. So they 
strengthened and resolved their hands for this good work. Notice the anointing didn't. It was a decision of the heart. They strengthened their hands. They, they, they had not had strong hands for 17 years. And with the right sermon and the right leader, they, they realized they could have done it all along. Oh, well, faith does come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And no doubt the Holy Spirit convicted them of their laziness. If there's anything that defines the American church, it's laziness. American Christians are awfully, awfully lazy. As it is said in in church statistics, in the average church, 10% of the people do 90% of the work, which means everybody else in the church is a parasite. Now, we are blessed here, but I'm not pleased with the statistic. We have an 87% helps rate around here. That's great. Why isn't it 100%? Does that mean we have 13% adult parasites? Is that what that means? Is 13% an acceptable number in the eyes of Jesus Christ? 87 is a B plus. If B is for bingo. They strengthen their hands. And I want you to know you can strengthen your hands for the work of God if you want to. Or you can strengthen, you'll, you'll strengthen your hand for whatever's important to you. If NASCAR is important to you, you'll strengthen your hand for that. If watching another movie is important to you, you'll strengthen your hand for that. If getting another soda is important to you, you'll strengthen your hand for that. If you need another excuse, you'll strengthen your hand for that. You will strengthen your hand for whatever's critical to you. So the question we ask is, why isn't the kingdom? Why isn't it God? Why isn't it evangelism? Why isn't it Bible study? Why isn't it a good reputation? Why isn't it faithfulness? Why isn't it a beautiful marriage? Amen. Nehemiah preached to them one simple sermon, exposed Israel's true condition, disgraceful. We've heard that expression, you are disgraceful. That's what the Hebrew says, a reproach, a disgrace. He was saying, you're disgraceful. Thanks, Lord, you send us a preacher and he doesn't hug us. He stands and says, this whole city's a disgrace and you're to blame. And his sermon was, oh, you disgraceful Jews. <laughs> that ain't the buddy Jesus of 2013, but it is the God of Israel. And he testified of God's favor. God's favor is on us to do this. And they arose to the occasion. They also strengthened their hands to do this good work. They resolved to obey God until this assignment got into their heart. You've got to resolve in purpose to do what's right till all of a sudden you just have a heart to do what's right. When what you want to do, when, when it's in your heart, you don't have to work at it anymore. But until it's in your heart, you have to keep reminding yourself and keep encouraging yourself and keep strengthening yourself and keep reminding yourself. But once it's in your heart, it just comes out of you. Any, any aspect of God's word that's a struggle for you, it is so because it's not in your heart yet. Amen. Any struggle, any obedience issue you have with God and his word is a struggle because you've not gotten it into your heart yet. Once it's in your heart, you don't even think about it. It just comes out of you. But until it gets in your heart, you're going to always struggle with it. And you're always going to suffer lack because of it. And that's why you ought to be highly motivated to get it in your heart, not just your head. Dr. Barclay corrected all of us on that Thursday. Did you catch how subtle that was? It's not about knowing. Yes, pastor, I've been teaching my church that for five years. It's not just what you know, it's actually doing it. So you can know the Bible, but that doesn't mean you do it. They resolved and purposed in their heart until they got it in their heart. Nehemiah 4, 6, 
So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together until the half there. It means we got it halfway built up. For the people had a mind to work. The Hebrew says a heart to accomplish. NIV says for the people worked with all their heart. And the New Living Translation says for the people had worked with enthusiasm. Boy, Nehemiah, can we pray that anointing in our church? A heart to work with enthusiasm. A heart to accomplish it, to work with all of our heart. Instead of working out with our heart to figure out an excuse why we don't have to work at all. Or to hardly work with our heart. Amen. Now for seven weeks it has been called building revival. Not you just coming and sitting in our chairs breaking wind in them and stealing the tithe. Enjoying our air conditioning. It's called building revival. For, for months now, we've been talking about the end of all things is at hand. The world is getting darker. You all agree with it. What are you doing to turn on light? What? Yeah, it's dark. Boy, it's dark in here. Could you go help turn on the light? Somebody else will get it. Man, we could use some light in here. There's a light bulb. Could you screw it in? I'm scared of heights. Somebody else will get it. They'll get it and they'll replace you. Like I say around here from time to time, your laziness is training your replacement. Yeah. This is in contrast to what they had been experiencing from the enemy since the days of Cyrus. Now remember, they strengthened their hands, but look at what the enemy said, Ezra 4, 6. Then the people of the land weakened the hands. Well, the Bible says the Jews strengthened their hands. You've got to know in this kingdom as we serve, you can strengthen your hands and you'll need to because the enemy is always trying to weaken your hands. You've got to always be strengthening your hands saying, I am well able, we're well able, let us go up at once. I can do all things through Christ. Father, not my will, your will be done. Lord, what, is your, what are you saying? What are we to accomplish in this hour? That's how you strengthen your hands. Or you can succumb to the enemy weakening your hand. How did they do that? It says, and they, the hands disheartened to slackness of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Anytime God's building something and there's trouble in the building of it, you know the enemy is working and he's succeeding. So the question is, who is succumbing to the demon? In, in, in uh, Ezra's day, the whole nation was succumbing to the, the testimony of the enemy. The Bible says in the next verse, Ezra 4, 7, and they hired counselors. That's what it comes down to, counsel. What are you listening to? Maybe it's in your head. Maybe it's the demon. Maybe it's a spirit of possum holler telling you, relax, you've worked so hard today. It's been a long day. It's been a long week. You relax. Yeah, go live in poverty. That's what our spirit, the spirit of our region says to this community. It's what we're fighting against. I don't appreciate my church yielding to it. The heart of our community is one of excuses and disrespect. And I don't appreciate my church yielding to it. Counsel will either strengthen your hands or weaken your hands. It just depends on what counsel you listen to. If you're one to make excuses, you're listening to demons. Because you'll exalt your excuse over the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's heresy. That's antichrist. And your excuse is so real to you, you are truthfully in your heart excused from obeying the word. 
and yet you want to have the answer for everybody else. It's a demon, and it's working overtime in our nation and our community and the world because if the, if the devil can make the church weak, God doesn't get what he wants. And all he has to blame is us fuses. And then you blow out because you can't handle the power that God wants to surge through you because you've always made the excuse. The people of the land weaken the hands. They dishearten to slackness and they trouble them in building. The devil used this same tactic in Nehemiah's day as they were finishing the wall, Nehemiah 6, 9. For they, Sanballat and Tobiah, all made us afraid, saying, their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it be not done. Look what Nehemiah said there, next part. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Notice what the enemy says to every church. Their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it shall not be done. I curse that thing to hell. And I forbid any of you from listening to that voice. That's what the devil wants to say to any church serving God. Their hands shall be weakened from the work. It will not get accomplished. Ha, ha, ha. We will accomplish it. We will crucify any lame excuse. We will actually change our reputation and our, our namesake. And we will be Christians that glorify God. Or the only other thing we can have is to be like Cookful. You only have one of two options here. Now, listen to me. I love Cookful. This is my hometown. I'm called to change it. Just like God loves us so much, he loves us the way we are, but he's going to change us. I love Cookful. I wouldn't trade Cookful for any city on the planet. I don't want to move anywhere else. But I love it enough to also change it because it's why we're here. We are leaven hidden in a lump to the whole lump. This is a lumpy lump called Cookful and Possum Holler. We're hidden here by God. We are the leaven hidden here till the whole thing is affected. Your option is either to go with God or end up like Cookful. And some of you have more Cookful in you than you can realize or see. So fellowship more with Jesus and show Cookful how to be better. They, the enemies, these were Samaritans, Samballant, Tobiah. These were masters of syncretism. Notice again what the voice of syncretism says. Their hands shall be weakened unto the work that it be not done. Notice what the hand of holiness says. Oh God, strengthen my hands. That's what you gotta be willing to say. Lord, strengthen my hands. Lord, get the excuses out of my heart. Show me it when it, when it, when it comes out of me. Show me how I'm so full of excuses. If the wicked heathen could weaken Israel's hands through speeches and threats, then Israel could certainly strengthen their hands through speech. How comes back to just calling those things that be not as though they were. Good old faith teaching. You mean it works for work ethic? Sure. It works for a building program? Sure. It works when you want to live and smell like Cookville? Sure it does. You've got to speak to it. I will be like the kingdom. I will not be like Tennessee. I will be like the kingdom. I will not be like America. I will work for God. I will not work like I work for the man. I will work for God. You speak it instead of staying the same. The commission. All right, now let's move on here. All three leaders of the post-exilic revival, that just means the revival after the exile, were commissioned, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. However, each of their commissions was unique. Zerubbabel was commissioned by King Cyrus to build the second temple and take exiles home. And with this one, Cyrus approached Zerubbabel. So the king came to the Jew. 
with Ezra. Ezra was commissioned by King Artaxerxes to investigate the Jews and judge them according to the law of Moses. But here, Ezra approached Artaxerxes. So a little bit different there. There, the Jew approached the king. Thirdly, Nehemiah was commissioned by Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem. Nehemiah approached Artaxerxes. So again, the Jew approaching Artaxerxes. So they're getting more confident. And that should show you a testimony of your life. When you walk with Jesus, you ought to be getting more and more confident. Amen? When you walk with Jesus, you ought to be getting more and more confident. The Jews were watching the favor of God in their life, and it was causing them to be more and more confident. As a Christian, you walk with Jesus, you ought to be gaining confidence. Your, per- your personality ought to be growing in Christ. If you go to heaven, the same timid church mouse you were when you got born again, you didn't grow as you should have or could have. You ought to be stepping out and growing. Uh, we don't believe in those personality tests around here because they give you an excuse to stay the same. Well, I'm an I. Well, Jesus says that's sin. Give me an I, I, and an S and an N, and that's what you are, sin. Well, I'm an A personality. That just means you're rude and you're a Jezebel. Honestly, Christians use the personality test to stay the same because the psychologist said so. Well, Jesus still doesn't like it. Fix it. I do those if you want to to realize how messed up you are. And maybe they'll give you a punch list of the categories and then you can go find scriptures that swat them down and you can get rid of the A, I, E, and D or whatever they are and find C-H-R-A-S-T. <laughs> I am a C-H. I am a C-H. I am a C-H-R-A-S-T-I-A-N. Christian, not a psychological nut job. All right. (laughs) Nehemiah approached Artaxerxes. He got confident. And I would add this, though I don't have in the curriculum. He was the most bold of the three because he was actually going to ask Artaxerxes to change his political stance against Judah. He knew the king had ordered Jerusalem destroyed. He was going to ask him, can I rebuild? That's tremendous boldness. It's basically like saying, uh, Mr. President, I know we don't negotiate with terrorists, but would you reconsider? That's about the extreme of it. I know you just said to stop the building of Jerusalem and Judah. Can I go and change your opinion? And can I get you to look bad? That's bold. Knowing that the king could have your head taken off. His request was threefold. He said, number one, send me unto Judah. That's pretty bold. What would you like, Nehemiah, send me? Send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may rebuild it. That's bold. He also requested, point two, letters of conveyance given for all the governors, assuring safe passage throughout the Persian kingdom. Give me letters, sir, that I can give to the governors that will make sure they don't arrest me or try to stop me or give me any problems as I'm traveling 900 miles across your kingdom back home. He also asked for a letter for Asaph, the royal timber supervisor, granting Nehemiah all the timber necessary for the gates of the palace, the wall, and for his personal house. Not only do I want to leave you, King Artaxerxes, I want you to build me a house. That's pretty bold. Not only am I your property and your trusted friend and your cupbearer, I'm the guy that dies if someone poisons you, but I want you to send me home and I want you to build me a house. (laughs) Look what Artaxerxes gave without request. Without request, the king generously granted Nehemiah military captains and horsemen. 
He didn't even ask for that, but he gave it to him. I love you, ma'am. It's a long journey. Take some of my captains and some horsemen as protection. He also, without request, the king generously appointed Nehemiah to be governor of Judah. He didn't even ask for that, but he said, if you're going to go, you might as well run the show. And he got to, the only thing the king asked is, how long will you be gone? And Nehemiah says, and he and I agreed to a date, and it turned out to be 12 years. And after 12 years, the Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah records that he went home to see his king again. He loved the king. The motivated. That's what this lesson's all about is the motivation because no leader, if the leader can't motivate or if the people won't follow the motivation, then everything's for naught. A unique thing happened when the God-appointed leader spoke. Israel was motivated into action. Nehemiah 3 is dedicated to giving a list of those men who were motivated and uh, where they worked on the wall. These men are included in the Holy Scriptures because of their obedience. Would you have been found there if you lived in Nehemiah's day, would you have been found in Nehemiah chapter three? Because Nehemiah chapter three does call out those that didn't help. Forever, you'll get to heaven. He'll say, you, you're, you're the bunch of lazy bones that didn't help Nehemiah. Shame. Sad, sad little Jews. Like Demas who forsook Paul. If Demas made heaven, we'll get to heaven and see Demas and we'll say, hey, look, it's the quitter. You know, you and I are building that reputation in heaven now. A reput- we are building a reputation in heaven. Here comes Melissa Eldridge, great youth leader, and they, they help do the work in the church in Cookville. There goes Brother Robert, world traveling evangelist and soul, soul winner. Or there goes little Jimmy Dum Dum, church skipper, parasite, and pervert. Boy, I'm glad he made it into heaven. We're building that reputation. The Bible says he even records our tears. If he catches every tear that we cry and he writes down every prayer we pray, that's what the Bible tells us, what about the actions we carry out? Over 45 names and groups are named specifically. A whole chapter dedicated to naming people and the lineage of the family they came from. Some of the notable entries are Elishab the high priest, and his brethren built the sheep gate. I think it's awesome that the first people on the list are the, preach, the main preacher, and he's taking care of the sheeps, the sheep gate. The men of Jericho helped to build a wall, so we have a whole group of men there. The Tekoites helped, but their nobles refused to. So the fancy pants from Tekoa, bunch of shiftless bums, the Bible says they refused to. That means they were, he tried to compel them. Would you come help? No, we refuse to. Well, that's kind of bold. So when you get to heaven and you meet the nobles of Tekoa, you say, bunch of lazy quitters, bunch of God refusers. That's their testimony. The men of Gibeon and the men of Mizpah. So big groups of men there. Uziel of the goldsmith. So apparently he had a job, but he could walk away from goldsmithing to help God. Hananiah, the son of a pharmacist, rich kid, wasn't a parasite. The son of a pharmacist was able to help build the wall. I, I think it's so cool that the Bible's so specific. It names who they are. And it, it's not, this is one of those things that proves the Bible's not made up. Like somebody's going to make up, I need a new character. <laughs> How does the word apothecary sound to you? Pharmacist? This guy's going to, his name's going to be Hananiah. He's the son of a pharmacist. Write that down. That sounds good. 
Rephiah, ruler of half of Jerusalem. So this guy oversees half of the city. He's working on the wall. Shalom, ruler of the other half of Jerusalem. That's what the Bible says. He's helping on the wall. The Levites helped. Actually, Shalon, uh, Shalun, ruler of part of Mizpah, and then the other half of Mizpah is accounted for. The Levites helped. The priests helped. The Nephinims helped. That's the entire ministry of, of, of the gospel. You had the priest, the high priest is accounted for. The priests, the, the, the Levites, and the Nephinims. The Nephinims were the temple slaves. The entire, we'd say it this way, the entire five-fold ministry offices were represented. Everybody whose job was to be a preacher was working on the wall. The preachers ought to lead the way anyway. They ought not be the ones making the excuses. The Nethanims helped. Shemaiah, the east gatekeeper, helped. He was just a lowly doorkeeper, but he helped. And then Malchiah, the goldsmith's son, helped. That's another one that cracks me up. Which, which Malchiah? The, you know, the goldsmith's son. It's again, if it was made up, what, so arbitrary. The goldsmith's son? But the thing you see with this is that it's every facet of life is represented. From the rulers to the lowly doorkeeper, to the priests, to the wealthy pharmacists and goldsmiths. Everybody's represented. And they're all men. Not one woman is recorded. The men actually did the work. That's rare in America. Every preacher will tell you, if it weren't for women in America, the church wouldn't exist. Amen. If it were not for the women in America, the church would not exist. Work would not get done. It would just totally dissolve. Women are the glue that hold the American church together. But back in Nehemiah's day, the men did all the work. Yeah. All these men think they're such tough guys. When we were at that purity conference last week, we gave this altar call, the second altar call, 95% women coming down to get help. And the thing I, I, I called out, I said, look at you bunch of thug wannabes with your hat sideways, your britches sagging. You're not tough, bunch of spineless boys. Think you're all that. Look at all these young girls that came down to the altar. And you're so tough, but you can't even come down and respond to God. You're no men, little wannabes. I called them believers, Justin Bieber wannabes. <laughs> Every time I said it, I got a good, a good response out of the crowd. You little bunch of believers. All tough at school, but you can't even come to the altar. Look at these girls, a thousand times tougher than you. It still goes on in our church. Our altar calls are mostly women. Our work details are mostly women. Why? Because we're, we're men, and it's been a long day at the office. My butt's sore. And I need to go home and unwind with eight hours of ESPN. And some jazz. Shiftless. Aiding in the construction was an act of consecration because this was a project that God had ordained. With all the men doing their part, even with extreme persecution and opposition, the Jews finished the wall in 52 days, fulfilling the will of God and setting the stage for more revival. How come only 52 days? Well, as we've been proven over the last several weeks, if you haven't skipped Sunday school, these walls have been under construction for 80 years. So when all you have to do is repair the damage that's been done over 80 years of construction, it only takes 52 days. They weren't built from scratch. They were just repaired. Amen. 
Are you motivated for God or excuse-filled for self? Father, I thank you for this punchy lesson number seven, but I also thank you, Lord, for the work you've called us to do in this church. May we build revival here so that this region can know God. May we build revival here so we can teach our region about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and, and win many people to eternal life. Father, I thank you for blessing these Sunday school lessons in Jesus' name. Amen.